This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. Um, my name is Erin Jones, and I'm the host of the Beyond Zero Emissions show today on 3CR 855 AM and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Um, we've got an action-packed show today, as always. We're covering a fair bit of ground. Um, we're going to start off with uh, Michael Lord, who's the Head of Research for Beyond Zero Emissions, and have a chat about the um, really interesting work that is following on from the cement report and actually looking at industrial heat. Um, there's some big emissions around uh, this. We manufacture goods all day, every day. We're using things that um, go through a process to be made and um, part of that process requires heat. Traditionally, that's been with fossil fuels, but we need to look at different ways of doing that. So Michael's doing some important work around that. We're then going to... Um, have a bit of a chat uh, around a really important issue um, around what's happening with some legislation that the government's posed around implications for charities, not-for-profit, social service type organisations around how they can... Um, how and what they can collect donations for funding their their important work. So that's something that's really important. And then we're also going to be having a bit of a review on the EV Expo, which happened in Victoria and Melbourne here back on February the 18th. Um, it was a really well-attended event, and we have a bit of a chat to some of the organisers of that event about how it all how it all went. So we won't delay, we'll get straight into chatting with Michael and um, get on with the show. So today, listeners, um, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR 855 AM in Melbourne. And be sure to check out the BZE website for podcasts of the various radio shows. But today I'm happy to welcome Michael Lord, who is the Head of Research for BZE. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Erin. Last time we spoke to you, um, you'd just uh, been working on the cement work, which was really well received for, from um, the construction industry particularly, and kind of carrying on further in that vein, we wanted to have a bit of a chat today around the work that's currently going on around industrial heat. So can you kind of give us a bit of a framework of where that fits more broadly with um, the BZE research and where that's up to currently? Yeah, sure, Aaron. Um, yeah, rethinking the rethinking cement 
report that you mentioned was the first part of our intended zero carbon industry plan. So looking at all the emissions across Australian industry and manufacturing, uh, it wasn't going to just be one report, but cement sort of became uh, big enough for one report. Uh, and we've had some successes with it in terms of action by government and industry. Um, but it still leaves uh, the biggest source of emissions from industry, which is actually their requirement for heat. So if you think of pretty much any material uh, that is manufactured um, from glass, plastics, bricks, metals, and even you know, a lot of food products, uh, the heat uh, is a big part of the input to the process. And the best, the, not the best way, but the, uh, the common way of getting that heat is to burn a fossil fuel in Australia, usually gas. So we're writing a report called Electrifying Industry, which will look at one way uh, we can stop burning fossil fuels to get that heat, which is to use renewable electricity to generate the heat. Right. Okay, so where is that um, up to in terms of, of the process? Uh, well, we're sort of, we started the research uh, uh, at the beginning of this year, well probably last year, but we started in earnest at the beginning of this year, so there's still a few months to go. We ex uh, expect to be published in about July. It's worth saying a word or two about why we're looking at electrification uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a means to heat, because it's not the only way you could generate renewable heat. So there's concentrated solar, of course, and BZD is uh, associated with that technology of concentrated solar. Yeah. Um, that would be, in the right circumstances, a very good way of getting heat uh, for industry. There's also some sustainable uses of bioenergy. And in a few locations, uh, you might look to using geothermal. Right. So we're, we're, we're in favour of the sustainable use of all those technologies. But the, they we're all have their pros and cons, though, don't they? I mean, the, they all have their pros and cons. And we're looking at electrification partly because really nobody else has. It's quite strange. Um, no one's really preparing for this world where we're going to have quite cheap renewable energy, uh, renewable electricity, and we can have as much of it as we want in Australia. Mm. So... You know, how can industry use it? No one's really looking at that at a holistic level. And also, electricity has a number of benefits. Um, one of them is that it's already available everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you're likely to have a factory is already connected to the electricity grid. Uh, so you, you don't have to build that new infrastructure. Which is and one of the funny, um, just as an aside to that, it, yeah. it just makes me think... Um, different topic here, I'm getting a little bit off topic but electric vehicles, people have this range thing, oh range, range you know, yeah. um, but, the, but the reality is electricity is virtually everywhere petrol That's stations right. aren't everywhere um, so it kind of goes to your point that I mean you know, yeah. where there are existing factories of course there is existing electricity connections yeah, that, that, that's right. And it's also a very flexible uh, energy source. You can do a lot of things with electricity that you can't do with a gas-fired system. Mm. Um, and you can use it to uh, power any process. So there's no theoretical kind of temperature limit to the heat with electricity, which isn't the case in some of those other something like concentrated solar. You can get very hot with concentrated solar, but you, you, it, it becomes...
becomes quite uh, uneconomic after a few hundred degrees. And I would think that the size of, of that kind of technology um, is not applicable to every situation. Yeah, that's right. You've got you've got to be in the right location for concentrated solar. So you've got to have the right type of uh, uninterrupted sunshine. You've got to have the space to mm. put all the mirrors. Another point about electrification is you don't need space around your factory. Uh, you you just need the wire uh, mm. delivering the electricity. Using electricity for heat in manufacturing is really about w what the process is. Uh, what's your process? What kind of temperature do you need? Uh, uh, and that will help determine which of the many electrothermal technologies uh, you need. So for many uh, manufacturers, they use heat in quite a low temperature range. So let's say below 150 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And the way they tend to get that is they have a centralized gas boiler mm -hmm. and then they pipe steam around the factory. And that kind of system entails huge losses of energy. Right. Uh, inevitably, uh, in in the transmission, in the boiler itself, uh, in, and give us an example. Give our listeners an example of what's a sort of an everyday item that gets manufactured that would entail that process through the um, manufacturing. Um, well, for example, any kind of food product, food products uh, that requires heat. So uh, canned food that's heated, or one case study we're looking at is the production of milk powder. Right. Um, so that's a multi-stage uh, um, manufacturing process where you take raw milk, you pasteurize it, and then from then on it's really removing the water. Mm, so dehydrating it to get it to a powder form. Dehydrating it, yeah. So uh, that, that, that would normally be run on a... Um, uh, the, the gas that they, the heat that they need for that, some of it would be provided by a centralised gas system. So one thing you can do is introduce heat pumps, and you put the heat pumps at the site that you need the heat, the site in the factory. Mm -hmm. So there are very few distribution losses, mm. and you know, followers of Beyond Zero Emissions will know the benefits of heat pumps. That the fact that they are several hundred percent efficient mm. so for the electric the amount of electricity you put in you mm. can get five six times more units uh, of energy out, heat so energy out. Yeah. and the interesting development um, when it comes to manufacturing with heat pumps is that the temperatures they're able to reach are increasing so there are heat pumps in japan now that uh, can deliver temperatures up to 160 degrees which didn't used to be available it used to be sort of about 100 degrees with the limit was the limit right. but now we're seeing heat pumps that can deliver steam at 160 degrees uh, and uh, people who work in this area think that 200 is going to be possible in the next 10 years or so yeah right degrees. so for so for the you know one of our listeners sitting at home there listening to this when you say a heat pump is that something they can visualise. I mean, I had a heat pump at, at, at my previous home for the hot water system. So are we talking effectively the same thing but maybe scaled up? Is it, this, is it the same, effectively the same technology? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same principle. It's the same principle as your refrigerator. It's the same principle as a combined cycle, uh, sorry, a, a reverse cycle air conditioner. Mm -hmm. um, it it's it's, uh, works on... Um, uh, compression and evaporation cycles of fluids that we understand very well. Right. 
Okay, and so, so those could be, rather than having transmission losses, these could be you know, very close to the, to the source of where that heat is needed. Yeah, that's right. And you're benefiting from this coefficient of performance, this mm. several hundred percent uh, efficiency gain that heat pumps give you. Um, they also take up less space. If you have individual heat pumps in the factory, they take up less space than a typical centralised gas boiler and, and distribution system. The it's other kind thing of I a, want to a mention, smaller yeah. scale, isn't it, of, of what's happening more broadly in the in the energy distribution um, story? Um, you know, we're kind of going away from that hub and spokes um, methodology where there was a big centralised power plant and the power all went one way. More to now, we're looking at um, more localised grids and and um, people not only being consumers of energy but producers of energy so when you kind of take that into a manufacturing plant rather than having a one big distribution point for for heat energy having those placed around more closely to where they're, they're used throughout that process yeah that's right that's, a, that's an interesting analogy um, I do want to just say one thing about heat pumps because there's, there's been a bit in the news recently about refrigerant gases mm-hmm. um, and heat pumps like fridges need the, uh, a refrigerant uh, to, to operate on and often those ref- in, in the past those ref- refrigerants as we know were um, ozone depleting mm. and now the ozone depleting ones have been phased out but the new ones are very, uh, have a very high global warming potential sometimes hundreds or thousands times more CO2 so we're looking at heat pumps uh, that use refrigerants that don't have that high global warming potential. Right. So you can use things, uh, refrigerants, uh, CO2 itself can be used as a refrigerant gas. So can ammonia, even water and air are potential uh, refrigerants and these don't have that very high uh, global warming potential. Okay, so, so CO2, which you know, as we know is the problem, a big part of the problem, when you're using it in that way, um, does it? De- what's that process? Is it still CO2 when it's been used, or does it actually deplete it in, in, in a useful way? Yeah, uh, the, the refrigerant is, is intended to be maintained within the system, mm-hmm. so uh, it so it just circulates. Right. It's not it's not use it's not using it up. But mm-hmm. the problem is what happens at the end of life of, of these mm-hmm. things. Um, if it's if it's CO2 and it leaks, it's actually only a very small amount of CO2, so not actually a big deal. Um, it's only a big deal with these other refrigerants when they're you know they're thousands of times worse yeah. than CO2. Uh, and there's the whole you know and there's leakage everywhere from the manufacturing right through to the disposal of the heat pump at the end of its life. Mm. Uh, so it's that that we've got to find alternatives to. Okay. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon, 
I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. I'm Erin Jones and we're talking with Michael Lord about the most current research that VZD is undertaking around industrial heat. And so for manufacturers then, um, looking at sourcing their own renewable energy, what kind of direction is your research taking you in and looking at these things? Yeah, that's a really important point. So if we move to electrification, it, it, we need to move to electrification at the same time as moving to renewable uh, sources of electricity. Mm. And, you know, be, Beyond Zero Emissions has shown that the whole country could do that. But when it comes to manufacturing, they don't actually have to wait for federal and state governments to, you know, put in place the policies and to achieve 100% renewables. They can just go out now and get their own renewable energy. So one way they could do it is they could just build their own solar or wind farm mm. and that could provide the electricity for their factory. Uh, that would have probably seen uh, very unlikely a few years ago but we're beginning to see examples of that now. Uh, a, a well-known one is Sun Metals who are building a 116 megawatt solar farm in Queensland for their zinc plant. Mm. Uh, it makes but, sense. You know, I mean, I did a show last year on the Sunshine Coast Council who have built yeah. a a, a farm to um, offset 100% of the council's energy and you know they didn't do it there were some um, I, I suppose it came down to the bottom line the bottom line was it made sense for them to do that um, so and one of the discussions that I had with them in, in that episode we were talking about the fact that really any big energy user it actually the economic stack up to do that that, that, that's right, and they're getting better and better. But, but what are manufacturers more likely to want to do? Um, some metals have got the money and the, the, uh, uh, the desire to build their own solar farm. But, but probably the way that more manufacturers will go is to sign a, per, a power purchase agreement for mm. renewable energy. Uh, so this is where you, sh you strike, a, you sign a contract with a wind farm or a solar uh, farm or a combination of the two for the electricity that that's providing. So you don't then have to get involved in the construction. No. You don't have to know anything about it. Mm. You're just signing a contract, a power purchase agreement. And this is what is really starting to take off. Yeah. Renewable energy power purchase agreements negotiated with the generator. And even if you're just a small manufacturer, you can go into a consortium uh, to do that. And uh, we're starting to see those consortiums uh, appear as well. And, I mean, effectively, it's like a futures contract. So it gives that um, whoever's constructing that um, renewable energy source, whether it be wind or, or solar or regardless, it doesn't really matter what the, what the technology is, it gives them the surety 
to make it a bankable product to go you know to get the finance then because they can say it's like any business proposition if you can go to the bank and say i've got these forward contracts for x amount of years or units of business or whatever your your um you know metric is in, in your particular industry it makes it bankable um, it makes it, yeah, it makes it bank- bankable for the renewable energy company. But mm-hmm. it also makes sense from the point of view of the manufacturer because, exactly. um, and one thing we haven't mentioned yet is is how manufacturers in Australia are suffering from the energy prices. What's happened to gas and electricity recently? They've just been buffeted by, for many of them, because they're in contracts that last two or three years. Suddenly, their cost of these things have doubled or even trebled. Yeah. Um, what these renewable energy power purchase agreements do is they enable them to manage that risk because they lock in a price for uh, you know ten years or more, and often that's more knowing your price for energy is is even more as useful as just getting a low price. Yeah, well, it allows them to plan, whereas at the moment yeah. it's like, you know, you have a budget to work to and suddenly one portion of your budget is 100 200% more than you, you budgeted on. I mean, it's not That's like, right. you know, businesses can, um, you know, increase their workforce by 100% and absorb those kind of costs. So it's been an incredibly destabilising factor, hasn't it, in manufacturing? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it, it, it has. And um, we've spoken to a few manufacturers and, um, and business groups like the uh, Australian Industry Group about the project we're working on. And they've made that point to us and said that that's one of the reasons it's a good time to be writing the report mm. that we're writing. Yeah, surety. That. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, the rising electricity prices and the idea of getting control over your, uh, uh, over your energy costs. Yeah. So given that, and, and certainly the, the um, we know the cement report was really well received, what are the plans then going forward to disseminate this information and communicate it with industry? Well, as I say, we've all, in a way we've already started that by going to have um, discussions with uh, I- I industry while we're writing the report. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- one idea we have, uh, which is a bit different to things beyond zero emissions has done before, is to actually run a conference Mm-hmm. So it's just an idea at the moment, and we will need the funding from somewhere. But we'd like to uh, run a conference for industry um, presenting the range of findings, because um, we're not just going to be talking about heat pumps, but we're going to be talking about electrification across the board in, in many, many materials, and to uh, gauge, to get feedback, to gauge interest, and, and, and really talk about how we can make these things happen. Mm. I think that's a really interesting way of delivering because, you know, you, you put traditionally, I suppose, BZD and a lot of other organisations, you know, puts all this work in. There's a there's a degree of um, you know consultation with whoever um, the vested parties are, and you come out with a with a document. Um, yeah, you're kind of making that a live document if, or a live interaction by by delivering that via a, via a conference. It's kind of a backwards and forwards, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, and we, we we would like to make it a living document, so we'll present case studies in this where we take a, um, a gas or a coal-fired process and show what it would look like in terms of energy inputs and costs as an electrified process. But we could continue to develop those um, even after we've produced the report. Mm. Uh, so that, that may be something we look at this, uh, as well because we won't be able to get to every manufacturing process uh, while we're writing the report. We'll just have to have case studies. Yeah, and, and like you say, you know, the thing in this area, the technology is moving so far, you know, you, you, 
you mentioned heat pumps able to, I think, 160 degrees, but looking at, you know, they're going to be 200 and, and probably other things will come online. Um, so these, these things really have to be kind of living documents, don't they, as, as the technology moves, moves forward? That's right. And I do just want to mention just, I mean, uh, one other technology which we'll look at is the manufacture, because it, it really um, highlights what electrification can do and allows us to think differently. And that's the manufacture of ammonia. Mm-hmm. So ammonia is an important industrial chemical, um, particularly used in fertilizers. But in the future, it could be even more important as a carrier, an energy carrier um, and a way of transporting hydrogen. Ammonia is a mixture of hydrogen and uh, nitrogen, or a compound of. Uh, at the moment, the way it's made is you take natural gas uh, and you extract the hydrogen from the natural gas, and that leads to lots of emissions of CO2. Mm. But of course, a lot of listeners will know you can get hydrogen through electrolysis, uh, and then you'd make ammonia by mixing that hydrogen with nitrogen from the air, as mostly nitrogen. Right. Uh, the costs of doing that, so it's a completely different approach uh, to getting ammonia. The costs of doing it through the electrolysis approach uh, are getting to uh, to cost parity towards cost parity um, with doing it the natural gas approach. Right. Okay. And what will get it to that parity? Is it about economies of scale, or is it about n- new research or new methods, or? Yeah, it's economies of scale, it's the efficiencies of the uh, uh, electrolyzers which produce the hydrogen um, and just understanding how to do it better. Nobody's done this on a really large scale, but but people are starting to. uh, There's a Norwegian um, uh, fertilizer company called Yara and they're planning to build a pilot pilot ammonia plant in the Pilbara. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, using you know, the electrolysis route to make the ammonia. So it's starting to happen, and this could be, and we said it back in the Renewable Energy Superpower report, a really big opportunity for Australia to manufacture and export hydrogen and ammonia for energy purposes. Right, and so what are the, what are the underlying factors that's made that European company pick that location? Is it about the sunries or what, what's kind of the factors that have driven that? Well I don't know all of the factors but certainly one of them, you know, one of the reasons for going uh, to the Pilbara is, uh, is, is the uh, solar energy yeah. available there uh, which is obviously huge in the Pilbara and what's interesting is you need it, to make the hydrogen this way you need water uh, and you need reasonably pure water, not seawater, and there's not a lot of that in the Pilbara. Mm. Um, but what they're going to do is de- desalinate seawater. Right. So they're not going to use any fresh water so that the economics even stack up enough that they're able to expend mm. a certain amount of energy. On the desal process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, that's really interesting. That'll be... Mm. Um, you know, interesting to see going forward uh, because obviously, you know, we're not talking about a company based in Perth deciding to do that in Pilbara. You're talking about a country on the other side of the world that's identified that location. So there must be some fairly strong drivers, which is kind of encouraging going forward. And, and like you say, based around, um, you know, the the opportunities that BZE identified in that, um, you know, being a, a renewable energy superpower in the future, that that's 
going to become more of a reality that companies actually look at utilising those natural resources for um, this type of manufacturing in, in Australia. Yeah, that's right. And the, um, once we've started, now we're starting to look at the opportunities from electrification of industrial heat. We're seeing a lot of these opportunities in, in different industries. And those opportunities haven't been looked at before because a big reason has been because gas has been so cheap in Australia. Mm. And there hasn't been that um, you know, analysis of you know, how, how can we uh, make... Uh, uh, reduce our energy usage and also the idea of electrifying when electricity was generated from coal and gas was probably not a very good idea because you're already wasting a lot of heat in generating the energy and so the electricity and then turning it back into heat mm, yeah. um, probably wasn't a good idea but with with solar and wind you know it's it's a completely different process yeah Listeners, we're chatting to Michael Lord, who is the Head of Research at BZE, and we're talking about um, some of the work that's happening currently uh, around electrification of industrial heat. There's been a suite of work around industrial processes that Michael's been working on currently. So that was some really interesting work that's going on um, and Michael Lord is heading that up. Um, as more of that comes available, we'll be promoting that and um, following up with it. So some, some really interesting stuff there and um, we look forward to talking with Michael more about it. So we'll get on to um, chatting about the EV Expo that happened in um, at the International Cart Centre in Melbourne uh, on the 18th of Feb. And uh, I spoke just before coming on the show to Rebecca Lee, who was one of the organising committee members. Listeners, I'm very pleased to have on the line today Rebecca Lee. And Rebecca was part of the organising committee for the recent EV Expo, which was put on by the ATA. Um, and uh, by all means, it seemed to be a great success. I was happy to go along and, and spend part of my day there. So welcome, Rebecca, and um, we look forward to having a chat with you about uh, how it all went. Great. Thanks very much for having me, Erin. So this, was this the inaugural year, or how did you have the event last year as well, I believe? Yeah, it's our fifth annual event. So previously we've held it at Swinburne Union Hawthorne, uh, which was great for public transport, but a little out of the way for a lot of other um, things and didn't give us a great amount of space in terms of being actually able to have touch and feel experiences of riding and driving the electric vehicles. So uh, as a celebration of our fifth annual event, we actually grew into a much larger venue at the International Karting Conference complex in Port Melbourne, which gave us uh, a great track to test all the vehicles on, which was fantastic. Yeah, no, that was really excellent. It's, and I think that's a really important thing with um, electric vehicles of all different different natures, and we'll talk about a bit of some of the ones that were there because there was a, a great variety. Um, you know, sometimes people need to have that hands-on experience to... Uh, you know, get over some of perhaps the anxiety or, or just to see something different. So it was wonderful to have a venue where people could actually, you know, do the touch, do the feel, do the actual drive and or ride. Um, I know I looked at some of the cues for trying out things and I thought, oh, I'll have to try to come back later because they were so, so well received. So that was really excellent to see. 
great, yeah. What, um, so, so what were your participant numbers like? Did you exceed your expectations this year? Uh, we had raised our expectations. Uh, we were aiming for 5,000 or more, and uh, our, our confirmed total numbers were about 4,800, and I'm pretty sure we did have some people sneak through uh, the back gate uh, and uh, other means. That, uh, so we probably exactly hit our target, I would say, so we're very happy with that. Yeah, look, I would say you would because I was one of those people because <laughs> I, missed the, I, I missed going the way that I probably should have gone and um, came in the exit because I thought if I don't turn here, I'm going to end up back on the freeway and be <laughs> um, looping around the city. So um, yeah. that was something. But no, it was a really excellent um, day and certainly BZE had a stall there and, and um, that was really successful and we had a lot of interest and a lot of um, people that were really keen to chat about our work, not only around electric vehicles, um, but some of our other work as well. So it was great, and it seemed like most of the stallholders were having a really engaged discussions with um, lots of uh, your visitors there. Tell me a little yeah. bit about... Um, I caught a couple of the um, discussions, but there was a really active uh, program of um, great high-quality speakers. Yes, uh, we had uh, Clint from our organising team arranging the, the presentation streams. We had one that was more for general punters and to learn about um, the the electric vehicles that are available in the market now, the basics of how they work, and and then uh, uh, we had some special guest speakers who were uh, world record holders in a couple of different areas. One who's um, converted his own electric Suzuki and crossed the Simpson Desert. I think he was speaking. He was definitely demonstrating his car, and also uh, Eva Harkinson, who's built, designed, built, and raced herself the world's fastest electric motorbike um, across the desert in uh, in this. You are on and, the um, salt flats. Yes, that's right. So uh, she did a couple of presentations, which was fantastic. One a bit more technical, and one uh, that was a bit more broad. So yeah, we were hoping to engage some um, some conversation. We had some politicians there as well giving uh, a synopsis of their opinions and uh, leanings. So uh, we we tried to cross a lot of the different audiences with um, our seminar stream and it's been something that's been part of our event since the start. We do definitely believe in um, expanding people's knowledge, not just the touch and feel, but actually really understanding how it all works. Yeah, and um, I did see one of the presentations from... Um Oh gosh, her name's escaped me. You just said it a minute ago um, with the um, Eva. Eva, the motorbike. Yeah. So she's actually from the University of Auckland, isn't she? And is actually doing some really important work in this space. Uh, you could be right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do believe she has re recently relocated to New Zealand. So um, I'm guessing you are right. Yeah, look, I think I think that's what I saw. But I'm sure our listeners, if they're interested, can um, Google fastest woman electric motorbike and, and they'll find her details there. Um, but, but as you mentioned, um, you know, there were um, some politicians there and that probably is a nice segue into the fact that um, the Greens have actually launched their EV um, policy position, which is, is pretty interesting um, reading and um, certainly what needs to, um, you know, we need some activity in this space. Uh Mm -hmm. It's got some, um, you know, some some goals in terms of moving purely to a hundred percent 
electric vehicles on new vehicles by 2030. Um, so what's the ATA's position? Do they have a, a policy statement on kind of time frames or is it just really about encouraging people to, to become more familiar with the, the um, EV technology? Yeah, well, as a branch of the ATA, the EV group which are involved, uh, we we are very keen to actually drive um, increased knowledge and uptake of electric vehicles. Um, I can't speak on behalf of the ATA because I'm not a staff member and I'm actually not clear on, I'm not right across all their policies and uh, press releases and things, but I do know that uh, we are... We are focused entirely on electric vehicles and the ATA are moving towards adopting um, more of a stance in terms of being able to leverage some um, some political discussions in the space and that sort of thing. Um, we, do, we can't be a lobby group as, um, as a not-for-profit, so we, um, there's certain limitations of what the ATA can and can't do in the space. But, um, yeah, it's... That's probably a question better directed to one of the board members of the ATA. I'm fairly loosely associated with the ATA myself, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, as I mentioned, you know, came along and, and I'm pretty keen and interested in, in EVs and we've done some features on the radio show previously about um, EV infrastructure and policy and some of the work that's going on and, and charging networks and, and in various other states around the country. So it's it's something that's um, certainly close to my heart, and it's really interesting to see that um, we've had one of the political parties come out with a distinct policy um, you know, around this. Certainly having a um, goal of 2030 with no new internal combustion um, petrol or diesel engines being sold. Um, yeah, I don't see why that. I don't personally understand why that goal is so far away. I don't, I don't know why that can't be uh, 2020 or 2025. I, I know all the major manufacturers uh, don't need very much incentive at all to actually um, start rolling out virtually all of their vehicles as electric. So I guess it's just the trickle feeding of the technology into uh, to suit their um, slow ramp up that they prefer to change over from one to another. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's far too distant a goal myself personally and I think we could change over a lot faster than that. Look, I think the technology is, is um, certainly there and, and for listeners that are interested, there's a really fantastic um, segment on a YouTube channel called Fully Charged, which is um, Robert Llewellyn is the presenter of that and they put out a episode on January the 12th this year with Eric Fairbairn, who is the founder and CEO of Podpoint, which is a charging infrastructure organisation in the UK. And it was basically a... a I think it's about an 18-minute video which looks at the barriers to EV adoption and kind of breaks down at what point those barriers become redundant. And it's because the the UK have, um, I think their target, the government's put out, is 2040. And what this this presentation goes through is basically saying, you know, it was a very easy for the, for the government to say 2040 because mm. in actual fact it's going to happen in, by 2030 anyway. And, to, mm-hmm. you know, if someone's going to buy an internal combustion engine, they're going to actually have to have a hugely compelling reason to do that and there won't be any logic in doing that unless, you know, for instance, you're an enthusiast. It's a little bit like 
horses. You know, horses didn't vanish because we stopped using horse and carts, but they changed their, you know, they became something that people do for recreation and sport, not for everyday transport. And I kind of see the same thing will happen for motor vehicles. There's still going to be people that are enthusiasts for, um, you know, uh, petrol vehicles, but they won't be the main runaround. You know, there'll be people that'll be still in clubs and, and have that kind of thing. But um, but that video particularly is really interesting because it goes through and kind of breaks down all the different barriers around cost, around range anxiety, around availability and costing of EVs. And certainly, you know, in the next couple of years, and Australia is lagging in this, but we're going to see a lot more models come online at all different various price points and, you know, to achieve different, um, different outcomes for people because obviously... You know, with internal combustion engines, not everyone drives the same vehicles because we don't have the, the same needs. And, and as that becomes more the case for, for EVs, um, that changeover is going to happen. So, Yeah, I think that part of the uh, part of the barrier we're seeing at the moment is that uh, we're not, we don't really have very many models at all available in Australia no. currently. So no. we only had one uh, car company that were willing to come and exhibit because they do have uh, product in the market, and that was Renault, um, no. which we were very glad to have a Renault vehicle on the track. It was fabulous. Um, but the other suppliers don't currently yet have, um, a, you know, a quantity of, of available cars in Australia. So that's a big part of the problem is that we don't have a lot of choice. And part of the reason for that is that the car companies are not seeing a market here because the government are putting these way off targets. Um, if, if, if the manufacturers see Australia saying, right, we want all cars, all new cars in Australia to be sold um, as electric or hybrid by 2020 or 2025, like an ambitious target, they'll see that, okay, this is a market that we actually need to start working on because the government um, has this expectation. So... Um, you know, the government aren't the ones that actually have to do the hard work anyway. They set a target and then everyone else has to do the work to make it happen. So I don't see why they can't be more ambitious, especially the Greens. Yeah, um, and look, I mean, the, the policy that the Greens have launched last week is certainly a lot more ambitious than um, any other. I mean, we're talking about light vehicle emission standards by 2022, um, removing import tariffs, GST, stamp duty and registration fees on, on zero emissions vehicles pretty much from from immediately. So yeah. there are some, some things there. It's a step forward. It's not um, you know the, the um, golden bullet, but I don't think anything is. But look, just going forward, what are your plans next year? I presume the EV, will, the EV Expo will happen again, bigger and brighter. What, what's the outcome from the um, review of this year's event? Yeah, sure. So we, we were very happy with basically uh, everything. We learned a few things having the new venue. Uh, we learned something about insurance being a barrier to us having some more cars on the track, funny enough. So we ended up uh, having quite a few cars actually going out on public roads um, as a better way to have them covered by insurances, which was odd. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're planning um, to have more car companies because there will be quite a few more cars launched later this year. Um, and just from our feedback, we got just people wanted more of everything. So, um, yeah, we're, we're hoping to have more parking available, more signage around how to get into the entrance gate, as you mentioned. Uh, we hope to have more sponsorship and to be able to um, promote the event more widely and uh, and also the venue for on the day of the event. 
Uh, and yeah, more cars for people to try, more bikes, more skateboards, all the all the other vehicles. Go karts. There, there was a there was a real yeah. range of vehicles. It was that was the particularly interesting thing. And I certainly yeah. I sent out a few tweets with photographs of um, one guy who had built a replica of the Batman. Um, the yeah, yeah, which was right. so. There was there was some really interesting stuff. It, it was great. So I think that was part of our intention was to remind people that uh, there are a lot of low budget electric vehicles available for our use as well, and a lot of those actually uh, have a lot more benefits than just being um, electric cars. So not a com- internal combustion engine, but actually active modes of transport that allow people to exercise at the same time yeah. uh, that don't create traffic and parking congestion uh, and that also relieves stress. So I encourage people also, rather than just thinking of electric vehicles as cars, do remember there are electric bikes, there are motorbikes, scooters, skateboards, all sorts of ways to get about. So um, the uh, the future is already here on that level. We have a, a lot of range of vehicles on that level already available now. Fantastic. Well, look, great to talk to you, Rebecca, and... Um Best of luck with next year's event and we'll look forward to talking to you in the run-up to that next year. Fabulous. Thanks very much for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. was a beautiful piece of music by Mia Dyson um, just to break up some of the chatting here that we're doing today on the BZE show um, my name is Erin Jones and I'm your host for today's show we're now going to talk about a really important issue not such a beautiful piece of music as that but something that's got real potential to undermine a lot of civil society and um, organisations in the community, not just climate advocacy or think tanks such as BZD, but all sorts of organisations. So I had a chat earlier today um, about this topic um, and um, we'll listen to that now. So it's about the um, preservation of charities and how they can collect um, funds to keep them going. Listeners, we're really pleased to have on the line Jonathan Moylan. And Jonathan is a campaigner with Greenpeace Australia Pacific. And we're going to talk about a really important issue today, which probably isn't getting enough coverage. And it's critical. It's critical to organisations like Beyond Zero Emissions, which obviously you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. It's critical to things like um, 3CR, which is the community radio station that we're broadcasting out of. And that's the current threat that there is to charities. So, Jonathan, can we just ask you initially to just outline what this threat is? Yes, absolutely, Erin. And, and actually, 
this is probably the most fundamental uh, threat to democracy that we've ever seen in Australia. Um, and I, I should probably point out as well that the, uh, the threat is not just to charities, it's to any not-for-profit, including social service organisations uh, who occasionally might stray into the public debate, to journalists, to um, union members, to um, even accountants. It's, it's really an extraordinary threat. So there are three pieces of legislation. One is a change in donations law, which would mean that every Australian giving to a charity would have to sign a statutory declaration or, it, or any not-for-profit would have to sign a statutory declaration declaring that they're an Australian citizen for tax purposes and any global support would have to be hived off and there would be a huge range of extra obligations on any organisation uh, that spoke up on issues of public importance. So that would mean that big companies could collectively influence uh, policy in Australia, whereas uh, your listeners, ordinary um, mums and dads, would not be able to advocate on matters of uh, public importance through their organisations. There are two other bills uh, that uh, were crafted by the Attorney General's Department that would um, really harshly criminalise uh, forms of ordinary protest, even talking to non-citizens about policy issues in Australia. So if you have a conversation with your flatmate or your mother who is a non-citizen, as mine is, um, about a issue of public importance, and then you go and uh, lobby a minister about that without having registered as a foreign agent, then you would be committing a serious criminal offence. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? That's um, really far-reaching, um, and I don't think that um, you know people out in the in the general public are really cognizant of the, the depth of of what this entails. These, these bills run through hundreds of pages. They are deliberately complicated. They breach uh, fundamental principles of justice. Some of the best lawyers in the country have struggled to get their heads around the implications of the bill. And I think that the government's really uh, using the confusion in order to um, ram these the, this mm. legislation quite strategic sounding. it's quite strategic mm. and in 2018 uh, in a world that is increasingly small increasingly interconnected mm. increasingly reliant on on the voices of ordinary people it's absolutely as you say it's draconian so for an organisation like ours, BZE, who does a number of outreach things, whether it's, it's you know, having a stall at a um, community festival, we're talking on, on today's show also with um, one of the organisers of the EV Expo, which was um, recently on in, in Melbourne, and we had a stall at that, and we're talking to people about the work we're doing and the research, and, you know, uh, people had the opportunity to, to make a donation. So in that case, what we've got to get every person to sign a statutory declaration saying that they're uh, a, a taxpayer in Australia, that seems preposterous. That's right. It's just not workable. And there is a united view. Um, fortunately, the government has brought together the entirety of civil society 
um, in opposition to this legislation, and our united view is that all three pieces of legislation are unworkable, they can't be amended, they need to all be taken off the table and redrafted with full public consultation. And it's the position that we've put to the government, it's also the position that we've put to the opposition, uh, but we really need a firm public commitment from the opposition that they will um, oppose the bills in their entirety and take them off the table. Yeah, right. Okay, so 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 currently, then they've been put up by the, by the government, and uh, they're at a discussion stage. Or, or where? What is the current state of play? Our understanding is that the government and the opposition are negotiating a joint recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, we would prefer uh, the opposition to be working with the crossbench to defeat the legislation. Um, but what's been really exciting is that tens of thousands of Australians across the country have joined forces to defend democracy. And if any of your listeners um, want to get involved, um, we really need them to be involved. Um, they can just go to www.handsoffourcharities.org.au and sign the petition. Uh, we believe the uh, committees will report in at the end of March mm-hmm. uh, and at that stage the legislation will come back into Parliament and we believe that they will be debated in around June. Um, complicating all of this is that uh, the government is making millions of dollars more than the opposition uh, ahead of the election. So our um, theory is that they will try and stretch this out right up until just before the election in order to uh, inflict ma- maximum pain on their political opponents. Yeah. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM in Melbourne and podcast around the country. We're talking with Jonathan Moylan from the... Um, who's from a campaign with Greenpeace Australia Pacific, and we're talking about the really important issue of the attack on democracy through some of this legislation that's been put up around attacking not only charities but social service organisations and not-for-profits, um, which would really cripple their ability. Um, and most of these type of organisations are really run on the smell of an oily rag. I know Beyond Zero Emissions certainly does, um, but does incredibly important work uh, and really makes that dollar go as far as it can. And I'm sure most of the organisations that we're talking about do exactly the same and achieve great outcomes, um, whether it's an advocacy or, or direct service provision, on a really limited budget. And this is effectively going to just make them inoperable in some cases, isn't it? Well, that's right. Uh, and, and there are a whole range of organisations that rely on public support, um, We, for example, are a completely independent organisation, so we refuse government and corporate um, gradations. And it's it's actually quite stunning that the uh, biggest corrupting influence on Australian politics, which is corporate donations and corporate relationships, are entirely unaffected by these bills. Mm. Uh, But if enough people come together in their numbers um, and call on the government um, to drop the legislation, call on the opposition to oppose it, um, flood those MP offices with phone calls, um, make it really make it an election issue, then the bills will be abandoned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just a reminder to our listeners, that website is www.com 
handsoffourcharities.org.au and you, you were also mentioning there is it you know people to be um, ringing their local representatives what other actions can people take as well as um, sign I believe you've got a petition on that on that site that people can sign up to but what other actions can people take talk to your friends and family about it um, especially if they work for a not-for-profit organization even if it's not an advocacy group um, we believe that 90% of people who would be affected by this legislation don't even know that it exists Mm. Um, write letters to the newspaper, um, raise it in, in your schools and churches and unions uh, and, uh, you know, really, you know, have those conversations with your members of parliament. We do know that they're listening and we do know that they're moving. So the conversations that people are already having are having an impact. Um, but, you know, the more churches and businesses and social service groups that come out and speak out about this legislation, the less likely it is that it will go ahead and the more we can create the kind of beautiful democratic society that we all want to live in. Yeah, exactly. All right, look, we really appreciate your time today, Jonathan. Thank you very much. And just uh, handsoffourcharities.org.au is the place for people to go to um, you know, find out more information, sign up um, to that and, yes, chat to... Uh, your friends, your family, workmates, a lot of people are involved in um, not-for-profit and voluntary organisations that may not even be aware of the impact that this posed legislation may have and really need to get some groundswell behind um, making sure it doesn't come um, come to be. So, yeah. But thanks very much, Jonathan, and um, we may chat again in the near future to just see how we're going on that. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm a big fan of the show. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we're nearly at the top of the hour and we've um, covered a fair bit of ground today. Um, I'd like to thank the guests that have been on. So we had Michael Lord, who is the Head of Research for Beyond Zero Emissions, Rebecca Lee, who is on the Organising Committee for the EV Expo, and finally there we had Jonathan Moyland, who is... um, part of the alliance that's for handsoffourcharities.org.au. So I really appreciate your company today. I'm I'm Erin Jones. I'll just let you know that the next BZE discussion group is on the 9th of April. Um, and it's on the second Monday, which is... Um, not the normal thing it's normally on the first but because of the easter long weekend it's on the second monday which is the ninth and that'll be a great discussion with simon corbell who's the victorian renewable energy advocate and a real authority on energy and energy transition so thanks for tuning in um just have a look at the website if you want more details about simon's talk it'll all be on the bze website Uh, bze.org.au Thanks for your company and I'll look forward to talking to you again Vivian will be back on next week and I'll see you later in April Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy As climate change action becomes an emergency leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. 
Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.